Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Before I start today's reading, I wanted to talk briefly about the upcoming second Quadrant of Balance book. Daniel has finished all the principal writing on the novel, and it is currently at the editor's, which he hopes to get back soon, and then I will start production on the narration for the audiobook. However, if any of you out there did purchase the original Quadrant of Balance book off of Amazon, I have a small request. Daniel is trying to improve its visibility on the Amazon website, and to do so, he needs to hit 50 reviews. He's currently sitting at 42. So, if you would be so kind, if you have purchased the book off of Amazon.com, would you please go write a review about the book? You don't even have to write a written review. You just have to tap the stars to indicate your enjoyment of the book itself. Thank you very much. And I'm sure Daniel thanks you as well. Okay, let's get into it. The Halfling's Gem, Chapter 15, The Guide See the pleasure it promises? The guildmaster teased, scraping his hand over the barbed tip of a single spike sticking out of a block of wood on the center of the room's little table. Regis purposefully curled his lips into a stupid smile, pretending to see the obvious logic of Pook's words. Just drop your palm onto it, Pook coaxed. Then you will know the joy and will again be part of our family. Regis searched for a way out of the trap. Once before he had used the ruse, the lie within a lie, pretending to be caught under the magical charm's influence. He had worked his act to perfection, then convincing an evil wizard of his loyalty, then turning on the man at a critical moment to aid his friends. This time, though, Regis had even surprised himself, escaping the ruby pendant's insistent hypnotizing pull. Now, though, he was caught. A person truly duped by the gem would gladly impale his hand on the barbed spike. Regis brought his hand above his head and closed his eyes, trying to keep his visage blank enough to carry out the dupe. He swung his arm down, meaning to follow through on Pook's suggestion. At the last moment, his hand swerved away and banged harmlessly on the table. Pook roared in rage, suspecting all along that Regis had somehow escaped the pendant's influence. He grabbed the halfling by the wrist and smashed his little hand onto the spike, wiggling it as the spike went through. Regis's scream multiplied tenfold when Pook tore his hand back up through the barbed instrument. Deceiving dog! The guildmaster shouted, more angry with the pendant's failure than with Regis's facade. He lined up for another slap, but calmed himself and decided to twist the halfling's stubborn will back on Regis. A pity, he teased. For if the pendant had brought you back under control, I might have found a place for you in the guild. Surely you deserve to die, little thief. But I have not forgotten your value to me in the past. You were the finest thief in Calumport, a position I might have offered you once again. Then no pity for the failure of the gem, Regis dared to retort, guessing the teasing game that Pook was playing. For no pain outweighs the disgust I would feel at playing lackey to Pasha Pook. Pook's response was a heavy slug that knocked Regis off of his chair and onto the floor. The halfling lay curled up, trying to stem the blood from both his hands and his nose. Pook rested back in his chair and clasped his hands behind his head. He looked at the pendant resting on the table in front of him. Only once before had it failed him, 
when he had tried it on a will that would not be captured. Luckily, Artemis and Trary had not realized the attempt that day, and Pook had been wise enough not to try the pendant on the assassin again. Pook shifted his gaze to Regis, now passed out from pain. He had to give the little halfling credit. Even if Regis's familiarity with the pendant had given him an edge on his battle, only an iron will could resist the tempting pull. But it will not help you, Pook whispered at the unconscious form. He sat back in his chair again and closed his eyes, trying to envision still another torture for Regis. The tan-robed arm slipped in through the tent's flap and held the limp body of the red-bearded dwarf upside down by the ankle. Salah Dalib's fingers started their customary twiddle, and he flashed the gold and ivory smile so wide that it seemed as if it would take up his ears. His little goblin assistant jumped up and down at his side, squealing, Magic! 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 Bruner opened one eye and lifted an arm to push his long beard out of his face. You be liking what you're seeing? the dwarf asked slyly. Salah Dalib's smile disappeared, and his fingers got all tangled together. Bruner's bearer, Wolfgar, wearing the robe of one of the bandits, walked into the tent. Caterbury came in behind him. So, "'Twas yourself that set the bandits upon us,' the young woman growled. Salah Dalib's exclamation of shock came out as so much gibberish, and the wily merchant spun away to flee, only to find a neat hole sliced in the back of his tent and Drizduarden standing within it, leaning on one scimitar while the other rested easily on his shoulder. Just to heighten the merchant's terror, Drizd had once again taken off the magical mask. "'Um, um, the bestest road!' the merchant stammered. Best is for yourself and your friends, Bruner growled. So they thought. Caterbury was quick to put in. Salah Dalib curled his smile sheepishly. He had been in tight spots a hundred times before and had always weaseled his way out. He lifted his palms as if to say, uh, You caught me! But then jerked into a dizzying maneuver, pulling several small ceramic globes out of one of his robe's many pockets. He slammed them to the floor at his feet, Explosions of multicolored light left a thick, blinding smoke in their wake, and the merchant dashed for the side of the tent. Instinctively, Wolfgar dropped Bruner and jumped ahead, catching an armful of emptiness. The dwarf plopped onto the floor headfirst and rolled into a sitting position, his one-horned helm tilted to the side of his head. As the smoke thinned, the embarrassed barbarian looked back at the dwarf, who just shook his head in disbelief and mumbled, "'Sure'n to be a long adventure!' Only Drizzt, ever alert, had been caught unawares. The drow had shielded his eyes from the bursts, then watched the smoky silhouette of the merchant darting to the left. Drizzt would have had him before he got out of the hidden flap in the tent, but Salah Dalib's assistant stumbled into the drow's way. Barely slowing, Drizzt slammed Twinkle's hilt into the little goblin's forehead, dropping the creature into unconsciousness, then slipped the mask back onto his face and jumped out onto the streets of Memnon. Caterbury rushed by to follow Drizzt, and Bruner leaped to his feet. After him, boy! The dwarf shouted at Wolfgar. The chase was on. Drizzt caught sight of the merchant slipping into the throng of the streets. Even Salah Dalib's loud robe would blend well in the city's myriad of colors. So Drizzt added a touch of his own. As he had done to the invisible mage on the deck of the pirate ship, the drow sent a purplish glowing outline of dancing flames over the merchant. Drizzt sped off in pursuit, weaving in and out of the crowd with amazing ease and watching for the bobbing line of purple ahead. Bruner was less graceful, 
The dwarf cut ahead of Caterbury and plunged headlong into the throng, stomping toes and using his shield to bounce bodies out of his way. Wolfgar, right behind, cut an even wider swath, and Caterbury had the easy time of following in their wake. They passed a dozen lanes and crashed through an open market, Wolfgar accidentally overturning a cart of huge yellow melons. Shouts of protest erupted behind them as they passed, but they kept their eyes ahead, ever watching the person in front and not trying to get lost in the overwhelming bustle. Salah Dalib knew at once that he was too conspicuous with the fiery outline to ever escape in the open streets. To add to his disadvantage, the eyes and pointing fingers of a hundred curious onlookers greeted him at every turn, signposts for his pursuers. Grabbing at the single chance he had, the merchant cut down one lane and scrambled through the doors of a large stone building. Driz turned to make certain that his friends were still behind, then rushed through the doors, skidding to a stop on the steam-slicked marble floor of a public bathhouse. Two huge eunuchs moved to block the clothed elf, but as the merchant who had come in just before, the agile drow regained the momentum too quickly to be hindered. He skated through the short entry corridor and into the main room, a large open bath, thick with steam and smelling of sweat and perfumed soaps. Naked bodies crossed his path at every step, and Drizzt had to be careful where he placed his hands as he slipped through. Brunner nearly fell as he entered the slippery chamber, and the eunuchs, already out of their positions, got in front of him. "'No clothes!' one of them demanded, but Brunner had no time for idle discussions. He stamped a heavy boot on one of the giant's bare feet, then crunched the other foot for good measure. Wolfgar came in then and heaved the remaining eunuch aside. The barbarian, leaning forward to gain speed, had no chance to stop or turn on the slippery floor, and as Brunner turned to make his way along the perimeter of the bath, Wolfgar slammed into him, knocking them both to the floor and into a slide they could not break. They bounced over the rim of the bath and plunged into the water, Wolfgar coming up waist-deep between two voluptuous and naked, giggling women. The barbarian stammered an apology, finding his tongue twisted within the confines of his mouth. A slap across the back of his head shook him back to his senses. "'You're looking for the merchant, you remember?' Caterbury reminded him. "'I am looking,' Wolfgar assured her. "'Then be looking for the one lined in purple,' Caterbury shot back. Wolfgar, his eyes freed with the expectations of another smack, noticed the single horn of a helmet poking out of the water at his side. Frantically, he plunged his hand under, catching Brunner by the scruff of the neck, and hoisted him out of the bath. The not-too-happy dwarf came up with his arms crossed over his chest and shaking his head in disbelief once again. Drizzt got out the back door of the bathhouse and found himself in an empty alley, the only unpopulated stretch he'd seen since entering Memnon. Seeking a better vantage, the drow scaled the side of the bathhouse and jogged along the roof. Salah Dalib slowed his pace thinking he had slipped the pursuit. The drow's purple fire died away, further adding to the merchant's sense of security. He wound his way through the back alley maze. Not even the usual drunks leaned against the walls to inform his pursuers. He moved a hundred twisting yards, then two, and finally down an alley that he knew would turn into the largest marketplace in Memnon, where anyone could become invisible at the blink of an eye. As Salah Dalib approached the end of the alley, however, an elven form dropped in front of him, and two scimitars flashed out of their sheaths, crossing before the stunned merchant, coming to rest on his collarbones, then drawing lines on either side of his neck. When the four friends returned to the merchant's tent with their prisoner, they found, to their relief, the little goblin lying where Drizzt had bopped him. 
Bruner none too gently pulled the unfortunate creature up behind Salad Lieb and tied the two back to back. Wolfgar moved to help and wound up hooking a loop of the rope over Bruner's forearm. The dwarf wiggled free and pushed the barbarian away. Should have stayed in Mithril Hall, Bruner grumbled. Safer with the Grey Ones than beside yourself and the girl. Wolfgar and Caterbury looked to Drizzt for support, but the drow just smiled and moved to the side of the tent. Saladalib <laughs> giggled nervously. No problem here. We deal. Many riches I have. What do you need? Shut your mouth! Bruner snapped at him. The dwarf winked at Drizzt, indicating that he meant to play the bad guy role in the encounter. I don't be looking for riches from one who's tricked me, Bruner growled. Me heart's for revenge. He looked around at his friends. You all saw his face when he thought me dead. Sure and it was him that put the raiding bandits on us. Saladily, never, the merchant stammered. I said, shut your mouth. Bruner shouted in his face, cowering him. The dwarf brought his axe up and ready on his shoulder. The merchant looked to Drizzt, confused, for the drow had replaced the mask and now appeared as only a surface elf once again. Saladalib guessed the truth of Drizzt's identity, figuring the black skin to be more fitting of the deadly elf, and he did not even think of begging for mercy from Drizzt. Wait on it, then, Caterby said suddenly, grabbing the handle of Bruna's weapon. May that there's a way for this dog to save his neck? Bah! What would we want of him? Bruner shot back, winking at Caterby for playing the part to perfection. He'll get us to Calimport, Caterby replied. She cast a steely gaze at Saladalib, warning him that her mercy was not easily gotten. Sure, and this time, he'll take us down the true bestest road. Yeah, yes, yes, yes! <laughs> Saladalib blurted. Saladalib, show you the way! Show, balked Wolfgar, not to be left out. You will lead us all the way to Calimport. Very, very long way, grumbled the merchant. Five days or more. Saladalib cannot. Bruner raised his axe. Yes, yes, of course, the merchant erupted. Saladalib, take you there. Take you right to the gate, through the gate, he corrected quickly. Saladalib, even get the water. We must catch the caravan. No caravan, Drizzt interrupted, surprising even his friends. We will travel alone. Dangerous, Saladalib replied. Very, very. The Calum Desert be very full of monsters, dragons and bandits. No caravan, Drizzt said again in a tone that none of them dared question. Untie them and let them get the things ready. Bruner nodded, then put his face barely an inch from Saladalib's. And I mean to be watching them myself he said to Drizzt, though he sent the message more pointedly to Salad the Lieb and the little goblin. One trick, and I'll cut them in half. Less than an hour later, five camels moved out of southern Memnon and into the Kalim Desert with ceramic water jugs clunking on their sides. Drizzt and Bruner led the way, following the signposts of the tradeway. The drow wore his mask, but kept the cowl of his cloak as low as he could, for the sizzling sunlight of the white sands burned at his eyes, which had once been accustomed to the absolute blackness of the underworld. Saladalib, his assistant sitting on the camel in front of him, came in the middle, with Wolfgar and Caterbury bringing up the rear. Caterbury kept Tolmaril across her lap, a silver arrow notched as the continual reminder to a sneaky merchant. 
The day grew hotter than anything the friends had ever experienced, except for Drizzt, who had lived in the very bowels of the world. Not a cloud hindered the sun's brutal rays, and not a wisp of a breeze came to offer any relief. Salah Dalib, more than used to the heat, knew the lack of wind to be a blessing, for the wind in the desert meant blowing and blinding sand, the most dangerous killer of the Callum. The night was better, with the temperature dropping comfortably, and a full moon turning the endless line of dunes into a silvery dreamscape, like the rolling waves of the ocean. The friends set a camp for a few hours, taking turns watching over their reluctant guides. Cadbury awoke some time after midnight. She sat and stretched, figuring it to be her turn on watch. She saw Drizzt standing on the edge of the firelight, staring into the starry heavens. Hadn't Drizzt taken the first watch? she wondered. Cadbury studied the moon's position to make certain of the hour. There could be no doubt. The night grew long. Trouble? she asked softly, going to Drizzt's side. A loud snore from Bruner answered the question for Drizzt. "'Might I spell you, then?' she asked. "'Even a drow elf needs to sleep.' "'I can find my rest under the cowl of my cloak,' Drizzt replied, turning to meet her concerned gaze with his lavender eyes. "'When the sun is high.' "'Might I join you, then?' Cadbury asked. "'Sure in a wondrous night.' Drizzt smiled and turned his gaze back to the heavens, to the allure of the evening sky with a mystical longing in his heart, as profound as any surface elf had ever experienced. Canterbury slipped her slender fingers around his and stood quietly by his side, not wanting to disturb his enchantment further, sharing more than mere words with her dearest of friends. The heat was worse the next day, and even worse the following. But the camels plodded on effortlessly, and the four friends, who had come through so many hardships, accepted the brutal trek as just one more obstacle on their journey they had to complete. They saw no other signs of life, and considered that a blessing, for anything living in that desolate region could only be hostile. The heat was enemy enough, and they felt as if their skin would simply shrivel and crack away. Whenever one of them felt like quitting, like the relentless sun and burning sand and heat were simply too much to bear, he or she just thought of Regis. What terrible tortures was the halfling now enduring at the hands of his former master? Epilogue From the shadows of a doorway, and Trerry watched Pasha Pook make his way up the staircase to the exit of the guildhouse. It had been less than an hour since Pook had regained his ruby pendant, and already he was off to put it to use. And Trerry had to give the guildmaster credit. He was never late for the dinner bell. The assassin waited for Pook to clear the house altogether, then made his way stealthily back to the top level. The guards outside the final door made no move to stop him, though Entreri did not remember them from the earlier days in the guild. Pook must have prudently put out the word of Entreri's station in the guild, according him all the privileges he used to enjoy. Never late for the dinner bell. And Trevi moved to the door of his old room, where Laval now resided, and knocked softly. Come in, come in! The wizard greeted him, hardly surprised that the assassin had returned. It is good to be back, and Trevi said. And good to have you back, replied the wizard sincerely. Things have not been the same since you left us, and they have only become worse in recent months. And Trevi understood the wizard's point. Rassida, Laval grimaced. Keep your back to the wall when that one is about. A shudder shook through him, but he composed himself quickly. But with you back at Pook's side, Rassida will learn his place, 
"'Perhaps,' replied Entreri. "'Though I'm not so certain that Pook was as glad to see me.' "'You understand Pook,' Laval chuckled. "'Ever thinking as a guildmaster, "'he desired to set the rules for your meeting with him to assert his authority, "'but that incident is far behind us already.' and Trevi's look gave the wizard the impression that he was not so certain. "'Pook will forget it,' Laval assured him. "'Those who pursued me should not so easily be forgotten,' and Trevi replied. "'Pook called upon Pinochet to complete the task,' said Laval. "'The pirate has never failed.' "'The pirate has never faced such foes,' and Trevi answered. He looked to the table and Laval's crystal ball. We should be certain. Laval thought for a moment, then nodded his accord. He had intended to do some scrying anyway. Watch the ball, he instructed Entreri. I shall see if I can summon the image of Pinochet. The crystal ball remained dark for a few moments, then filled with smoke. Laval had not dealt often with Pinochet, but he knew enough of the pirate for a simple scrying. A few seconds later, the image of a docked ship came into view. Not a pirate vessel, but a merchant ship. Immediately, Entreri suspected something amiss. Then the crystal probed deeper, beyond the hull of the ship, and the assassin's guess was confirmed, for in a section corner of the hold sat a proud pirate captain, his elbows on his knees and his head in his hands shackled to the wall. Laval, stunned, looked to Entreri, but the assassin was too intent on the image to offer any explanations. A rare smile had found its way onto Entreri's face. Laval cast an enhancing spell at the crystal ball. Pinochet? He called softly. The pirate lifted his head and looked around. Where are you? Laval asked. Oberon? Pinochet asked. Is that you, wizard? Nay, I am Laval, Pook's sorcerer in Calimport. Where are you? Memnon, the pirate answered. Can you get me out? What of the elf and the barbarian? And Trevi asked Laval, but Pinochet heard the question directly. I had them, the pirate hissed, trapped in a channel with no escape. But then a dwarf appeared, driving the reins of a flying chariot of fire, and with him a woman archer, a deadly archer. He paused, fighting off his distaste as he remembered the encounter. To what outcome? Laval prompted, amazed at the development. One ship went running. One ship, my ship, sank, and the third was captured, groaned Pinochet. He locked his face into a grimace and asked again more emphatically, Can you get me out? Laval looked helplessly to Entreri, who now stood tall over the crystal ball, absorbing every word. Where are they? The assassin growled, his patience worn away. Gone, answered Pinochet. Gone with the girl and the dwarf into Memnon. How long? Three days. And Trevi signaled to Laval that he had heard enough. I will have Pasha Pook send word to Memnon immediately, Laval assured the pirate. You shall be released. Pinochet sank into his original despondent position. Of course he would be released. That had already been arranged. He had hoped that Laval could somehow magically get him out of the sea sprite's hold, thereby releasing him from any pledges he would be forced to make to Dordemont when the captain set him free. Three days, Laval said to Entreri as the crystal darkened. 
They could be halfway here by now. And Trerry seemed amused at the notion. Pasha Pook is to know nothing of this, he said suddenly. Laval sank back in his chair. He must be told. No! And Trerry snapped. This is none of his affair. The guild may be in danger, Laval replied. You do not trust that I am capable of handling this? And Trerry asked in a low, grim tone. Laval felt the assassin's cowless eyes looking through him as though he had suddenly become just another barrier to be overcome. But Entreri softened his glare and grinned. You know of Pasha Pook's weakness for hunting cats, he said, reaching into his pouch. Give him this. Tell him you made it for him. He tossed a small black object across the table to the wizard. Laval caught it, his eyes widening as soon as he realized what it was. Gwenhyver. On a distant plain, the great cat stirred at the wizard's touch upon the statuette and wondered if its master meant to summon it finally to his side. But, after a moment, the sensation faded, and the cat put its head down to rest. So much time had gone by. It holds an entity, the wizard gasped, sensing the strength in the Ankh statuette. A powerful entity, Entreri assured him. When you learn to control it, you will have brought a new ally to the guild. How can I thank you? Laval began, but he stopped as he realized that he had already been told the price of the panther. Why trouble Pook with details that do not concern him? The wizard laughed, tossing a cloth over his crystal ball. Hentreri clapped Laval on his shoulder as he passed toward the door. Three years had done nothing to diminish the understanding the two men had shared. But with Drizzt and his friends approaching, and Trerry had more pressing business, he had to go to the cells of Nine and pay a visit to Regis. The assassin needed another gift. <laughs>